Harvey, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much. Right out. I'd like to talk about your career a bit. What is your genesis uh, or the genesis of your compulsion to defend civil liberties? Well, first of all, I should say that I started out my education as a pre-med. That's because I had two Jewish parents and back in the, back then, all Jewish parents wanted their children to go to medical school, at least the male children. But I went to Paris the su summer after my sophomore year. Um, my Princeton got me a job there, and they paid the airfare. It was a special program. And I thought about my life. I was away from my parents, and I decided I was more interested in the problems people caused for other people rather than the problems the germs caused. So I came back and I switched from pre-med to pre-law. And um, so I became a lawyer instead of a doctor. Um, my fields are criminal defense, civil liberties, free speech, due process, academic freedom. Um, and um, I represent quite a few students and professors uh, who are uh, who, who are uh, have problems in uh, on college campuses. So, uh, civil liberties, criminal defense, um, and uh, academic freedom are, are my fields. Those are rare areas of law. Um, criminal defense, not so much, but the other ones are niche areas of law. Why go into those? Well, I was a newspaper reporter very early in my life, and I was planning on being a journalist at one time. In fact, I I attended the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and did two stories about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, I, I, I went down there when I was um, uh, a, a student. Um, uh, I have so I have a great interest in in reporting, uh, and um, I find the distressing the uh, the lack of objectivity in the major American press today. I mean, I'm involved in some of the stories they report, and I can tell you that the stories have very little relationship with the truth. I'm very disappointed at the New York Times, for example. You know that I'm representing John Eastman. I'm co-counsel for John Eastman. And when I, re I read, every day I read cover to cover, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, and the Boston Herald. And I read online, and I read them in the newsprint edition. And I read online the Washington Post. So I'm a newspaper junkie. The only newspaper that reports anything accurately, the only anything related to Trump is the Wall Street Journal. The Herald doesn't cover its own national news. It only covers local stuff. It covers, so it uses Associated Press um, reports on national stories. But the Journal is the only newspaper with the integrity to report Trump-related news accurately. Um, I don't care about editorial pages. Um, they're entitled to, every newspaper is entitled to its opinion, but it's not entitled to its facts. And the press is, um, so that that just feeds into Trump's stuff about, you know, the, um, the fake news. Uh, unfortunately, he's right. 
uh, about much of the fake news. So I say, if I want to find out what's going on, um, I, I read the Wall Street Journal. I, I now turn to the journal first in the morning. And that's a sad comment on the American uh, um, media. You know, on your website, it says that you're very careful not to label yourself a, a white collar lawyer or a drug lawyer. Why is, if that's the case, why are you reluctant to kind of adhere to these labels? Because I do uh, all criminal cases. I do white collar work. Um, I do bank robberies. I do thefts. Um, I do sexual assaults. Uh, lawyers who, you know, the the large law firms, at one point early in my career, they didn't do any criminal work. They thought that it was, um, it was you know, the, the white shoe firms, the white shoe tells you about the firm. Um, they didn't want to dirty themselves with criminal cases. But then uh, when the federal government began prosecuting white collar criminals, they felt they had to do white collar work. Um, and so they, if you look on the website of these large white shoe law firms, you'll see it says represent, you know, businessmen, white collar. They will not do a rape. They will not do a bank robbery. They're not real criminal lawyers. Unless you try the really hard cases and the hard cases of violent crime cases, you you don't really have the skills. Um, and so um, it's sort of a, um, you know, uh, it's I consider it to be a bit of a joke um, to specialize only in white-collar cases because that means you really don't understand the criminal system and you're not really very good with juries and so forth. You mentioned that a second ago, and obviously you've represented folks accused of the most heinous of crimes, terrorism, uh, espionage. Why is it important for criminal lawyers to defend people that the public, the system, uh, people in general consider to be so heinous, let's say? Well, first of all, everybody under the Sixth Amendment is entitled to the representation of counsel. The Supreme Court has modified that by saying they're entitled to the effective representation of counsel. Um, and um, I feel I take that seriously. And nobody has ever come to me to ask me to represent them. And I would say, Ugh, I will not do that, that case because of, of this crime. First of all, they're presumed innocent. But even if they tell you the truth and they and, and, and um and um, they, they admit what they've done, you have an obligation, a professional obligation. It's not a legal obligation, but it's a professional obligation to provide what they are entitled to under the Sixth Amendment, the effective assistance of counsel. So um, I make it uh, a, a practice when somebody tells me what happened, if I think they're withholding stuff, I give them a lecture about the Sixth Amendment. I tell them that um, uh, it doesn't matter to me uh, how bad the crime was, how disgusting and how awful and so forth, that I take this very professionally. I, and I, I use this analogy. If I was a physician, which is what my parents wanted me to be, and I'm walking down the street, and let's say Donald Trump is walking on the street and he gets a heart attack and he collapses on the sidewalk. 
that physician has an absolutely clear ethical obligation to go over and administer CPR. Uh, if the physician doesn't, the physician's going to have trouble with the licensing board in, in his or her state. Now, I'm a lawyer. Despite my parents' desires, and I'm walking down the street, and Donald Trump has a heart attack. I not only have an obligation, not, not, not a heart attack, Donald Trump gets indicted. I have an obligation if he asked me to represent him. And in this case, he didn't, but John Eastman did. Um, I have a professional obligation to not turn down the case merely because of an ideological difference. There may be other reasons I can't do it. I may be too busy. It may be that my fee is too high and I'm not willing to do it pro bono. There are other reasons, but I will not turn down a case because of a political difference with a client. I happen to like John Eastman, but I don't agree with him politically. He understands that I'm a libertarian liberal. Um, that's not a progressive, by the way. That's a, I'm a liberal. A liberal is a person on the left who believes in civil liberties. A li um, progressive is a person on the left who doesn't. Just like on the right, there are traditional Republicans and there are fascists. Um, you know, traditional Republicans like, um, uh, uh, well, I don't know how they go naming them, but um, um, I consider Mitt Romney to be a very traditional Eisenhower type Republican. But there are also quite a few uh, Republicans on the far right verging on, in my view, being having fascistic tendencies. And there really should be four political parties in this country, not two. A lot of our problems are caused by smushing together people who, who, who don't even want to talk to each other. It's one of the reasons for our political paralysis right now. Um, in any event, uh, so I take that obligation very seriously. I have never turned down a client for ideological reasons. You mentioned Eastman. You know, Look, throughout American history, lawyers have made creative legal arguments, right? The rules, one could argue, encourage lawyers to make creative legal arguments. But obviously, there has to be some line that's drawn. Um, is that an inconsistency as you see it? No, I believe that we're going to get Eastman acquitted. All of his advice was within the, the boundaries of propriety and legality. Um, it was uh, some of it was way out. Um, I would call it creative, very creative. Um, but I believe we're going to win the Eastman case. I have very little doubt about it. It may end up on appeal because not all trial judges understand this stuff. Um, remember, a lot of the trial judges were former prosecutors. That's how they got onto the bench. They have a mindset that is uh, against the defendant. But um, uh, on appeal... I expect that we would win. If we don't win the trial, I expect we're going to win on appeal. Do you think this is a case that should have been charged under the RICO statute? No, RICO is a monstrosity. It was a monstrosity in the federal system, and it's a monstrosity by the copycat states. The reason is it's kind of a conspiracy on steroids. Conspiracy law is very dangerous. Conspiracy law basically says if two or more people get together to plan a crime. Whatever is done by any one of them is attributed to all. 
And so in a conspiracy, you are criminally responsible for what somebody else in the group does, even if you have not given explicit consent to what that person does. It's the reason, for example, if three people rob a bank, their goal is to get money. One of them shoots a teller and kills a teller. They're all guilty of murder. And that's because they agreed to rob the bank. They are responsible for what somebody else does. I've always thought that that's a very um, um, unjust rule, but it's an old common law rule. It's been around for hundreds of years. Um, now, that is very, very uh, unfair in the context of a political prosecution because you should not have everybody in a large group of people whose goal was to reelect Donald Trump. Uh, you should not have all of them responsible for what everyone else does. Um, and, and that's obviously gonna be a major part of our defense. I expect other defendants will raise the same thing. There are some people who what they did was arguably criminal, but there are a few people, particularly the lawyers, who what they did was not illegal. And as long as they're not held responsible for what somebody else do has done, they should be acquitted. So the challenge in, in, in these cases will be that those who represent, especially lawyers, uh, who have provided lawful advice, not be held responsible for what somebody else did. I want to talk about some of your other work. Why was it important for you to defend the church Scientology's religious liberties? Um, I am very familiar now with Scientology. I wasn't when I was retained. I can tell you that there is nothing, and this is how I won the case. Um, there is nothing in Scientology that is different from any other major religion. Let me tell you what happened. The case in Boston was a religious fraud case, Lavenda Van Schaik versus the Church of Scientology of Boston. Now, mind you, there were cases in California, there were cases all over, but the main case, the one that produced an important legal decision by Judge W. Arthur Garrity Jr., by the way, a very religious Catholic, he was the judge who ordered the school of segregation in Boston, which resulted in riots. Um, he was a tough guy. Um, judge Garrity seemed skeptical. Uh, I moved to dismiss on the ground that everything in that complaint was um, protected by the First Amendment's freedom of religion guarantee. I won most of the counts. There were a couple of counts I lost, which had nothing to do with religion, which had to do with um, the, the way money was um, was uh, gotten from some of the members. Um, but I won the counts because what I did was I took the complaint drafted by Lavenda Van Schaik's lawyer and I refashioned uh, re it as a complaint against the Catholic Church where L. Ron Hubbard was represented in the other side by the Pope. 
And all of the doctrines that the Catholic Church has, I analogize to the doctrines that Scientology had. And Judge Gary dismissed all but two of the, the counts. And he understood that it was a religion not unlike um, any other religion. If you are a believer, a person who believes in religion is asked to believe things that are not provable, that the, the very existence of God is not provable. Um, and, um, and so my general approach is what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And that is a very useful principle in the First Amendment cases. Um, the late Nat Hentoff was a friend of mine, and he had um, a wonderful book title, Free Speech for Me, But Not for Thee. And the First Amendment does not allow free speech for me, but not for thee. You've written a ton about free speech on college campuses. You've written a book about it. Why is that important to you? Well, because in the college campuses, um, more than just about any other place, the only other place where free speech is, is important is in the newsroom. Um, it's very important because the notion of academic freedom tells us that unless you're, you're, unless you're, you're free to voice your opinion, then real education doesn't happen. It becomes indoctrination. And um, so um, college campuses... Uh, have to be free. And yet, uh, it's actually one of the less free places in our society. And the reason for that is that colleges have made the, and universities have made the horrendous mistake of hiring armies of administrators, bureaucrats. There are now more administrators in American higher education than there are teachers. That's outrageous. It also accounts for the $80,000 a year tab uh, tuition at elite colleges and universities. Um, I ran for the Harvard Board of Overseers on a, on a platform of um, firing 95% of the administrators, getting that would get rid of speech codes, it would get rid of kangaroo courts, they wouldn't have the personnel to man them, um, and it would reduce tuition by nearly 50%. Um, I, I ran on this platform uh, 19... In, in, in the year 2011, I believe it was my first run for the Harvard Board of Overseers, um, you needed 350 signatures of alumni to get on the ballot. I easily got the 350. I came, I was the, I got the highest number of votes of any candidate who was a writing candidate. Um, I, I nearly beat out the last official candidate. I came within, I think, of few hundred votes of, um, of winning a seat. The next year, Harvard raised the number of signatures you needed to get on the ballot from 300 something to 3000 something. They did not want me to run again. I made a try last year and I didn't get enough signatures to get on the ballot. But the bureaucrats know very well that the first thing I will do if I meet with the board is introduce a resolution to fire them. And since they run the college, um, they're not about to let me get my foot in the door. Um, I'm, I'm viewed by Harvard's administration as a dose of venereal disease in an army barracks. 
irrespective of politics, have civil liberties taken a hit generally in the U.S. over the past several years, decades? Yes. Um, and and th these are extraordinarily contentious times we're in. Um, the, the last time I remember times this contentious was during the Vietnam War, um, when there were all kinds of riots, draft riots. Um, but this is the most contentious era that I can remember. And it, it, it is calling for um, cries from, for censorship from everybody who wants the other side shut up, but they don't want their own uh, voices shut up. Um, and, um, and we have this, um, these, you know, progressives on the left and the fascists on the right, each of whom want to shut the other up. Um, and um, it's very dangerous because if, if speech is bottled up, people will resort to violence. The thing about free speech, one of the most important functions is not only the Oliver Wendell Holmes notion that out of a multiple number of voices and opinions, uh, eventually truth will emerge. And not only that, but it also is a substitute for violence. In societies where there is no free speech, people resort to violence. And so free speech is a great peacekeeper, among, among other things. Is this issue fixable politically, legally, at all? The one thing I can tell you, I can't predict what's going to happen in five or ten years. All I can tell you is it will be very different from what's what happens today, because history is a is a continuum of change. Um, sometimes change for the better, sometimes for the worse. Sometimes what is it? History repeats itself. Sometimes is tragedy, and sometimes is farce. Um, that's just the way it is. So, so the one thing I can tell you is that ten years from now, things will be very different. How will they be different? I don't know, and I probably won't be around to. Uh, to see it, you will. Um, I'm 81, but um, but it will be different. You can trust me on that. I want to talk about another book that you wrote called Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. What was yeah. that book about? Well, that was my gripe about federal criminal law. Let me explain the problem. The Constitution does not give the federal government, plenary criminal powers. It has power, criminal power, only in certain circumstances. First of all, there are enumerated crimes, treason and so forth. Then there are, um, there is the interstate commerce clause. If you commit a crime, an ordinary state crime, and in the process you cross over state lines, or if you use the mails, which are federal, they're run by the federal government. Or if you use interstate communications, you know, telephone, Zoom, computers, there is federal jurisdiction. That means that contrary to the plan of the founders, the federal government has plenary jurisdiction over virtually every area of American life. This was not the plan. And it is extraordinarily dangerous. Why? These, these crimes are not defined. Mail fraud. What is fraud? 
it's up to the courts to try to figure out. Um, so I think that the whole concept of the way federal law has evolved through the mail fraud and wire fraud and interstate commerce power is disastrous because these crimes are not defined. The federal courts are not restricted to the common law definition of crime. Everybody knows what it means to assault somebody. Everybody knows what it means to steal something. But nobody knows, nobody knows what it means to commit mail fraud or wire fraud because those are not defined. Only the means are defined, mails, telephone, and so forth. An extraordinarily dangerous development. Why does it sound antithetical, but perhaps accurate to defend hate speech? Why is that important? Oh, hate speech is much more important than love to protect than love speech. And I'll tell you why. Everybody likes to be loved. Everybody likes to have people compliment them and say, oh, you're terrific, blah, 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 blah. But what's really important, important, not soothing, but important is to know who hates you. Why? So that you know not to turn your back on such a person. And I consider it very important for people. I'm, I've gotten a number of death threats. I don't like death threats, but I really appreciate them. It tells me whom I have to watch out for. And it's the people who would like to shoot me, but who don't warn me ahead of time that I consider to be dangerous. But um, I think hate speech is much, it's much more important to protect hate speech than love speech. And that's one of the, another reason I can't stand the way college administrators, they want everybody in, in college campuses to be so nice to one another, you know, to, to like one another, to love one another, to respect one another. But it's much more important to know who was on the other side of you than it is who, who's your ally. That's another reason college administrators um, are so dangerous. Uh, Harvey, I want to finish up by talking again a bit about your career. As you look back at the decades that you've been doing this, um, and you're not done yet, obviously, what point do you consider or what case do you consider most memorable in your history? Well, I would say my representation for years of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, I am convinced that he did not murder his family. He is in prison on three consecutive life sentences for the murder of his wife and two young daughters. I don't believe he did it. I believe he had an unfair trial by a very biased judge and a prosecutor who was out to get him and was out to make his reputation. Um, Alan Dershowitz and I brought a number of habeas corpus petitions in front of an extraordinarily biased judge. I'll tell you, Judge Franklin Dupree Jr. is probably the worst judge I've ever appeared before, and I've appeared before some doozies. At the initial hearing at the habeas corpus petition, Dupree came out on the bench. He looked down at Dershowitz and Silverglade, and he particularly focused his attention to Dershowitz. Dershowitz was more well-known than I. He, he was my law school professor. He was, um, I was, I'm three years or four years younger than, than Alan. And um, looked down and says, 
Mr. Darshowitz, it's such a pleasure to have you in my court. He intentionally mispronounced Dershowitz's name. You can see the dislike for the Jewish New York born and raised lawyer. Um, and I turned to Alan. I said, Alan, we've lost this motion. And he says, yeah, I know. And we did lose the motion. And Jeffrey McDonald, an innocent man, remains in prison today. Harvey, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your discussing your experiences. Thank you so much for doing this. Righto. My pleasure.